I'm so glad you're with us today on this second installment in our series that we've entitled, I Didn't Catch Your Name. There are a number of significant people in the Bible whose names we don't know. We know something about them, but we don't know their name. Today, you're going to be introduced to a woman who lived in the city of Zarephath during the time of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And God taught her a lot, and we can learn from her example, even though we don't know her name. Don't be put off by that. There's lots of stories that we follow just fine without a name. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, I mean, you knew there was a tin man who didn't have a heart, but you didn't know his name. You knew there was a scarecrow who didn't have a brain, didn't know his name. You knew the lion needed courage, okay? And I'm glad somebody laughed on that because I put myself way out there on that one, okay? Uh, Anyway, but we didn't know their names. You followed the story just fine. Today, you're going to follow this story very well because even though we don't know her name, this woman had to choose whether she was going to go and trust the things that the people around her trusted or she was going to put her trust in the Lord. And this is a lesson today upon trusting the Lord even if everybody in your culture tells you something else. Even if your own common sense might tell you something else. There are times when the Lord, and when we know that the Lord has given us a command, we have to follow him. And this is a woman who did. She was a widow from the town of Zarephath. I'll explain all about that in just a second. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. There are stories in the Old Testament and in the New that teach us things. And this is a story today of great faith, of choosing to trust you and follow you over everything else. I pray, Lord, today you will stretch our faith from the story of this widow. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Move me out of the way, Lord. Show us whatever you want us to learn. Amen. Point one on your outline simply says this. The Old Testament prophet Elijah was sent by God to confront the sin of idolatry among God's people. If you're curious, you can write about 850 B.C. is when this story happened. Okay? Um, Elijah is a prophet. God would speak. uh, His Holy Spirit would come powerfully upon men and women at certain times, and they would speak on God's behalf uh, when he wanted to make his uh, point clear, when he wanted to make his will known, especially to the leaders of Israel, his chosen people. And many times prophets were sent when the kings were going off the rails to bring them back on. Elijah was one such man, and he was sent to a wicked king by the name of Ahab. Listen to 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah, who is from Tishba and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I serve, there will be no dew nor rain during the next few years until I give the word. Now the reason this had happened was that King Ahab was a wicked king, and he had chosen to take the people from worshiping the true God, the maker of heaven and earth, to worship, and instead he wanted them to worship a silly little idol by the name of Baal. And that's point A here. The people of Israel had abandoned God for Baal, a Sidonian deity believed to control rainfall. Now, if you're not sure where Sidon is, and I'll show you that in a second too, but what you need to know is at this time, the people had a choice. They could either worship the God of heaven or they could worship a little statue. And the people of Sidon, who did a lot of trade and commerce, and Israel wanted to get wealthy by trading with them, they worshipped this guy, Baal. This is a picture of a little statue that's been on earth. This is in the Louvre in Paris. It's on display. 
That's what Baal looked like. They would bow down to him. His hand was up. This is where he would have been holding a lightning bolt. He was the god of weather. And in agricultural economy, if you worship the god who controls the rainfall, that's a smart thing to do. Only he didn't control the rainfall. He's a dumb little statue. But the people worshipped him anyway because the Sidonians believed that was the right thing to do. In fact, this is how far Ahab took it. This is 1 Kings 16. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. So he married a Sidonian princess. This is one of the ways you ratified a treaty with a neighboring nation. You took the king's daughter as your wife, and that guaranteed you wouldn't attack each other. For the other king to attack you would mean he'd have to attack his own daughter. That type of thing. And so this is, they're setting up trade here, but they didn't just set up trade negotiations. He began to bow down to worship of Baal. Ahab built a temple for Baal and an altar in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And then he set up an Asherah pole. And Asherah, by the way, was Baal's girlfriend, okay, in this pantheon of gods. And he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings before him. Now, if you want to, if you put that map up here, what we're talking about is Israel had started out as one unified nation after they'd come to the land after their journey from Egypt. But after the time of David and Solomon, there was a civil war, and it split into two nations, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. We're talking about the northern kingdom, Samaria, and Ahab is the king. Well, he has gone and made a treaty with the Sidonians up here. Sidon, the capital of Sidonia, is just a few miles south of modern-day Beirut, if you're wondering where we are. And so they, these people up here worship this god of rainfall, Baal, and um, Ahab said, hey, this would be such a good idea. We'll build a temple for him right here, and you know, my people are your people. Here we go. And God was angry at him. In Deuteronomy 11, he had told the people of Israel, the children of Israel, when they come into the promised land, this is your land that I've chosen for you. It was smack dab in the middle of all the trade routes in the Middle East. All the people would pass through. He said, I want you to show the whole world who the real God is. Put your trust in me. In Deuteronomy 11, he said, look, if you will trust and obey me and worship me, I'll give you rain in season. You'll have lush green pastures. You don't have anything to worry about, but put your trust in me. Do not make treaties with these other nations. Do not marry their princesses. Don't worship their gods. But that's exactly what Ahab did. And now you know why Elijah was sent to tell him it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain because I'm God's prophet. And that brings us to point B. Here's why God sent this man, Elijah. Elijah's very name means my God is Yahweh. Yahweh was the name given to Moses at the burning bush. When he said, hey, if I tell the people of Israel that I'm leading them to the promised land because God sent me, they're going to say, which God? What's his name? And he said, well, my name is I am that I am. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh. And so Elijah's name literally means my God is Yahweh. And so Elijah was sent to this king who was making, who was wheeling and dealing, didn't care what God he worshipped, by a man who said, no, the true God is the God, the creator God of the universe, the one who appeared to Moses. Well, here's a life application for you and me. We must never worship anyone or anything but God. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going, 
John, I am not tempted to worship a little statue that's in the Louvre. Well, no, those aren't the idols we deal with. But we have idols. I mean, this idol was a little representation of everything that they trusted in to provide for their well-being, to give them success. It was what gave them identity. And so this is what their nation had, was this little God. Well, if you and I aren't careful, we can put other things in our lives that give us identity, that we value more than the Word of God itself, that we will basically devote our lives to in order to get more of or to get significance with it. Here's what Paul said, Colossians 3, 5. He said, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. I mean, you see how we could get attached to things. If I have a, a lot of stuff, then I'm significant, and I put my confidence in my stuff. And I rejoice when I get more stuff. That's what makes me truly happy. And Jesus says, don't do that. Because thieves break in and steal. And things rust and fall apart. And you can't take it with you when you die. Don't put your confidence in stuff. Jesus also said, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Money could become an idol. If I have a lot of money, then I've got security. Until, of course, the stock market goes down and then I don't have security. If I got a lot of money, I'm significant. Until I meet somebody with a lot more money, then they're significant. Anything we put in the place of God will ultimately disappoint us. Could even be a relationship with another person. I know this isn't a healthy relationship. I know this isn't right for me to be in this relationship. I know the Bible would say I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because this is what I need. And that's at the heart of idolatry. It's worshiping something that we can control or that we can manipulate to give us what we want instead of trusting the creator God of the universe to give us what he wants. This whole chapter is going to be about that. The next couple of chapters in the Bible, but the chapter we're studying today is really a choice between am I going to trust God or am I going to put my trust in the things that other people do? Ahab was convinced that he should go with the rain god. That's why he married the princess. Good economic times. And the Lord sent a prophet to him. You are the king of Israel. You're not just the king of any random nation. These are my people, and you should have led them to worship me. Because you have chosen to worship the rain god, I'm going to turn off the spigot. And I don't know whether Elijah did the sound effects, but, but I did, okay? So anyway, but the whole thing is, it's not going to rain again until I say so, and then Elijah left. And you can imagine probably people in the court laughing. Who's this crazy old man? But after he left, it stopped raining. It, there wasn't even dew. The humidity went down. And it became a real problem. That brings us to point two. God then hid Elijah at a widow's house while he disciplined his people and exposed the foolishness of worshiping Baal. This is where we're going to meet the widow who lived in Zarephath. He was disciplining his people. The people had all said, great, good times, free trade with Sidonians, all we have to do is worship their God. They turned their back on the God of the Bible and they worshiped the God of the culture next to them so they could get more stuff. 
And God said, no, if you're going to trust the God of rain, you'll find out I'm the one who makes rain. In fact, in James 5, 17, we found out how bad things got. When Elijah prayed that it would not rain, it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, if you can imagine, I mean, I can't even imagine that. If it hadn't rained in three and a half years. It gets dry if it doesn't rain in three and a half weeks. Three and a half months, we have a severe drought. Three and a half years, it's a wasteland. And all these people lived in an agricultural economy. No rain, no grain. No grain, no cattle that eat the grain. No food, no money, no trade with anyone. And that's what happened. They foolishly put their trust in a little statue they can't see or hear. And that's when the Lord told Elijah in, verse, in chapter 17, he said, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. And before this, in the next couple of verses, he'd, been, he'd put Elijah uh, for a few months anyway next to a little brook across the Jordan River, and some ravens had fed him. But when that brook dried up, that's when the command came to the widow to go to, the, to Zarephath. Now, I want you to know that Zarephath is in the heart of Baal country. This is, uh, remember we had Judah, Israel. Well, Sidon's right here. This is where Jezebel came from, and she moved down here and brought Baal with her. Well, just a few miles south of Sidon, this is where Zarephath would be, right here. So in the heart of Baal worship, God sent his prophet. He'd been hiding out over here on the other side of the Jordan at a brook, and then when that dried up, he had him travel all the way up here, right into the heart of the place where Jezebel came from, just a few miles from the palace. And this is important because there's a life application for you and me. The Lord knows, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the final day of judgment. The Lord knew exactly how to protect his man, and he knew how to protect a widow that lived right there. And you'll see in a minute, she was a special woman. I just throw that out there as an encouragement to you when you're going through a hard time and you're going through a challenge. You're saying, does the Lord even know where I am? The Lord knows. And what's so amazing in one of the commentaries that I read this week studying this passage, it said, isn't that just like God to show how powerless Baal is? He takes his prophet, the one who has to pray again for it to rain, and he hides him right in the shadow of the palace where the wicked Queen Jezebel came from who'd been pushing all this false religion. Now, Elijah had to hide, by the way, because the king was searching desperately after weeks and months passed by and it got really dry and he realized, hey, this is no joke. All the prophets of Baal were doing all the rain dances they wanted and it still didn't rain. We got to find this Elijah guy. You find him and we'll torture him and get him to pray. So it'll rain. Well, the Lord had anticipated all this and so he hid Elijah at the one place they never thought to look, in the shadow of Jezebel's hometown. God is so smart. Here's a little more of the story. So Elijah went to Zarephath. This is 1 Kings 17, verse 10. And as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water and a cup? And she was going to get it. He called after her. Oh, and bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I only have a handful of flour left in a jar. 
cooking oil, a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. And if you'd circle the word first, significant. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord of God of Israel says. There'll always be flour and olive oil left in the containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and, crops, and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and, Eli- and Elijah and her son continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So it was a miracle. That brings us to point B. When the widow put God first, he took care of all of her needs. He gave her enough bread for each day. He gave her daily bread. Literally. When she put God first. There's a life application for you and me. When we put God first, he'll take care of our needs. Would you read that with me, please? When we put God first... He'll take care of our needs. Now, this is what the Bible promises. Jesus himself said this, Matthew 6, 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. It's a promise from Jesus. And so the widow here, right in the heart of Baal country, been raised worshiping Baal. Everybody around her worshiped Baal. A prophet of God comes to her and tells her, you need to trust the God of Israel. And if you do, he'll provide for you. She had a choice. I mean, she was down to her last bit of flour just to make a piece of bread, put some olive oil on it. She and her son were going to eat it, and they were going to die. And she could have said, get lost. We're going to eat this last meal and be done. But even with her very last handful of flour, she decided, I'm going to trust the word of the Lord. I mean, this was the word of the Lord given through the prophet. It's trusting the scripture. When everyone around you is telling you, don't you dare forgive them after what they did to you. But then you read in the Bible that we're supposed to turn the other cheek and let God settle the score. And so you decide to forgive somebody who doesn't even deserve to be forgiven because Jesus forgave you. It's like that. It's like saying, I'm not going to compromise my purity. Even though I'm in love with someone, I'm dating them, and all our friends living together is no big deal. Compromising on God's standards is not an issue. That is so out of style. Saying, "Mm -mm, I'm going to trust the Lord even if nobody else does. It's like that. It's saying the word of the Lord is trustworthy and true. I'm shocked because people tell me all the time, they go, you can't read the Bible. It's full of those old stories and stuff. They aren't even relevant today. Aren't relevant? I mean, you understand in the days of the idols, can we put that map back up? Can you guys find that again? In the days of the idols, each area had their own gods. This, this is where the God of heaven is supposed to be worshipped. But there were gods all around. 
folks over here would worship gods of war. There were other people at sea who'd go fishing. They'd worship the god of the sea. And then these people worship the god of the weather. And so when you'd move into a new place, they go, who's your god? This is our god. And everybody was fine with a pantheon of gods. You just couldn't tell anybody, hey, this is the way that you should worship God. They had theirs, you had yours, and as long as everybody kept their own understanding of how to worship God, everything would be fine. They just didn't want you pushing any of your religion on them. Can you imagine living in a world like that? And you know what else? When Elijah came, he didn't just tell people, hey, this is my God and this is your God. He said, I worship the true God. You say you worship the God of the sea, who controls the sea. I worship the God who made the sea. You say you worship the God of rain. I worship the God who made clouds. And you will see now who the real God is. I mean, this is the story of the Bible. God asks us to really trust him. And when his word gives us clear instruction to obey him, because this woman had clear instruction, the only question is, will she put God first or not? Is he really trustworthy or not? Now, Debbie and I, I have a niece uh, who is just like this iron woman. She once biked all the way from across the United States, from California to South Carolina. She went all the way across, started out with a rear wheel in the Pacific, put her front wheel in the Atlantic. She came right by here through Prattville and spent one night here as she was doing this. She had dinner with us, and my boys were amazed. This is a strong woman. She also hiked the Appalachian Trail just for kicks by herself. That's a long trail. But it was one of the things that was most interesting to me. I asked her, I said, well, you know, when you're hiking this trail, how do you get supplies and stuff? And she goes, oh, well, I have checkpoints that she had, she knew how far about how fast she'd be hiking each day. And she had checkpoints where she'd arranged with her mom and dad, my sister and her husband, when they would mail her supplies and her supplies would be waiting for her when she got to that certain place. She'd find the post office or the location there where they could mail supplies. Can you imagine trying to hike the entire Appalachian Trail with hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food and water on your back? I mean, with a refrigerator tied to your back? I mean, you couldn't do it. Well, she didn't have to. She just had to hike to the next place, and there would be supplies waiting there because her mother and father told her they would provide for it. And she trusted them. Can you imagine if we lived that way, that we looked at our life as a journey along a trail and that God each day would have the supplies for this day? And the Bible tells us we should think that way. That's point C. God gave the widow just enough to provide for her son, herself, and Elijah. Just enough. There was always just one handful of flour left. She'd make a cake, serve it to Elijah, and then there'd be another handful. She'd make one for her son, make one for herself. And this happened over and over again every day. Proverbs 30. Oh God, I beg you for two favors. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Life application for you and me. 
Jesus wants us to ask God for enough to meet our needs. And if you'd cross out us and put your name there, Jesus wants John to do that. How do I know? His disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, and here's how the Lord's Prayer starts. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And would you say the next line out loud with me, please? Give us today our daily bread. Help us to trust you that the supplies for tomorrow will be waiting there when we wake up. And the supplies for the next day will be there too. There, uh, Matthew Henry wrote a commentary long ago that, where he explores a lot of details and he gets into some interesting details. On this particular passage, he said, what a kindness that God gave the widow only a handful at a time. He said, can you imagine if he had given her all the grain she needed for three and a half years? She'd have had to have a warehouse. She only had a small little house. And if there had been this massive pile of grain at her house that, poof, appeared, what was a time of famine when everyone was hungry? Somebody would have come and stolen it. Or worms would have gotten in it. But as it was, it was just enough for every day. She didn't have to worry about a threat from anyone trying to steal her almost empty flour jar and her almost empty oil jug. And it gave her the opportunity to every day remind herself that today God will provide for me. The supplies will be waiting there. I mean, God asks us to trust him that way with every part of our life. The wisdom we need for tomorrow will be there. But will we trust him and will we listen when it comes? This is a story about choosing whether we'll put God first or ourselves first. Will we trust in the creator God of the universe or some dumb little statue because we want to make money off these people? What do we trust more? Point three. Well, the widow had learned to trust God. I mean, this happened over and over again every day for three and a half years. But somewhere along the line, there was a sad turn of events, and her faith was tested at another level. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. And then she said to Elijah, Oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, laid the body on his bed. And Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord God, please let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. And then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you're a man of God, and the Lord truly speaks through you. She'd learned to trust him. She'd learned to trust the word of the Lord. But I want to make a couple of observations very quickly here. When tragedy struck, the widow immediately blamed Elijah. A man of God, why'd you come here? Come here to kill my son? It's your fault. She was looking for somebody to blame. Life got scary. 
didn't turn out the way she wanted. She'd been experiencing God's blessing in the middle of a famine. Remember, she thought she was going to die the day Elijah showed up. But she'd forgotten all that because she was in the midst of tragedy. And so she lashed out in blame. We can do that too if we're not careful. We forget something very important. And this is a life application here. The bad things happen to all of us because we live in a fallen world. The Bible doesn't promise us that if we become a Christian and put our faith in Jesus that we'll never have anything bad happen to us. In fact, Jesus said, you're going to go through many hard times, but be of courage. I've overcome the world. The Bible tells us people of faith don't believe they'll never get sick or never have a business reversal, never lose a job, never have a broken relationship. No. Scripture promises that the Lord will go with us through all those things, and that's when we need to lean into him more. Romans 8, Paul reminds us of this. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. That includes you and me. We're under this curse. Put our faith in Jesus. We'll still get old. We will still get sick. We will still die in this world. But through faith in Christ, that's not the end of the story. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It's talking about heaven here. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The writer of Hebrews says some more on this. This world is not our home. We're looking forward to a city in heaven which is yet to come, a place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, no more death ever again. But that's not here. That's heaven. We have God's word on it, and we have to trust God's word even when people around us mock it. Well, if we trust that to be the case, then we're making whole different decisions than people who believe this world is all there is. So first of all, she blamed Elijah. Secondly, when tragedy struck, the widow falsely assumed God was getting even with her. Remember, she said, Did he have you come here just to point out my sins and kill my son? Is he getting even with me for that shady business deal 10 years ago? Is he paying me back for high school? And we can think like that. Many people do. They think that God is just waiting to get even, just waiting for a chance. Ah, now I got you. And yet the scripture points out a God who's exactly the opposite of that. Old Testament and new. Ezekiel 18.23 Do you think I like it to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord, of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. And that's the last life application. God loves lost sinners. He sent Elijah to help this widow. And when she experienced the daily bread, and when she experienced the giver of life, she realized God is the true God. Remember that's Elijah's name? My God is Yahweh. Yahweh is the real God. Not stupid little Baal statue. John three sixteen and 17. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. A few days ago, uh, Debbie and I uh, marked a, it's one of the sadder times in our lives. Back in 1988, on June 5th, um, some of you have heard me share this before, uh, Debbie and I, before our three sons were born, we had a little girl who was born, and she passed away shortly after birth uh, because she was born very premature. Her name was Taylor Catherine. She was named after my grandmother. We'd only been married a couple of years at the time, and it was the most painful thing that we'd been through by far at that time, and one of the most painful things we've ever been through as a couple. And never forget, after it happened, we were already in ministry, I remember some people coming up to me and they were meaning well on other things and they were trying to reconcile us in their heads and they said, you're in full-time ministry. You left a job to go into full-time ministry. Why would God do this to you? Why would he let this happen to you? You're one of the good guys. I said, no, we live in a fallen world. This little girl, Taylor Catherine, she's safe in the arms of Jesus. I'll see her again one day. One day very soon. In fact, some of you have also heard me share that when my mom passed away a few years ago, that was one of the coolest things that we talked about. Just a few hours, just the day before my mom died, she was conscious right up to the end. And uh, we'd flown up there to see her. My whole family, we all got to say goodbye to her. And she was in hospice care and knew she wouldn't live much longer. And uh, she said, hey, uh, she told Debbie and I this, that she said, hey, when I get to heaven... I'll tell Taylor Catherine hello for you and I'll give her a big hug. That's not just wishful thinking for an old woman who is facing death. That's trusting the word of God that my mom and Taylor Catherine are alive and well and safe in the arms of Jesus. So here's the point of the story. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust the things valued by our culture around me? The culture around us says, hey, you don't need to read the Bible. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to be rich and famous. You don't need to trust the word of the Bible. You need to get even. When people do you wrong, if they give you trouble, you give them double. You show who's boss. You look out for number one. There's no God looking out for you. And this life is all there is. There is no heaven. There is no hell. You better make the most of this life because this is all you got. And the Bible says, no. There is a God in heaven. And he loves you. And he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins once and for all. You surrender your life to him. He will send his Holy Spirit to be inside of you and he'll change you from the inside out. He'll give you power that you cannot imagine to love, to forgive, to obey. And when your mortal body dies, he'll give you a brand new body in heaven that will never die again. That is the promise of Scripture, and we are told, trust in the God of the Bible. The widow had one more cake. She could have eaten it and said, that's all I want. She invested it. And the rewards were incredible. What about you and me? And this story applies to us. 
We don't know the widow's name, but she faced the same temptations we do. Lived in a culture hostile to God, hostile to the God of the Bible. She said, I don't care. I'm going that way anyway. What about you and me? And by the way, if you know somebody, a child, a brother, a parent who's far from God, remember, God sent Elijah to that widow in Zarephath, knew exactly where a faithful woman was, even though she was in the heart of one of the most wicked places on earth. Don't give up praying for people. He knows where those people are too. That's that other reference I didn't read in there. Jesus was talking about exactly that. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for the wonderful news of Christ Jesus. I thank you for the wonderful promises of Scripture. I thank you you love us so much you sent your only son to die in my place and pay the penalty for my sins even though I don't deserve it. I thank you that you went and found that widow in the middle of a wicked place. And because she trusted you, she saw miracles happen. I thank you for a man of God who was willing to obey you and go wherever you told him. I thank you that you loved your people enough, even though they had to suffer through three and a half years of terrible drought, you loved them enough to teach them a lesson so they would trust you more. In a moment of silence, if the Lord has reminded you of something you need to surrender to him today, surrender it now. If you've been complaining that you don't have enough, but you have enough to meet your needs, would you say, I'm sorry, Lord, let me trust you for what you are providing instead of complaining about all the things I don't have. He may well be protecting you from burdens too heavy for you to bear. And finally, would you pray for someone you know who is far away from God, that God would go find them, send someone to them the same way he sent Elijah to Zarephath. Pray for them by name. Someone far from God. That God would send someone like Elijah to tell them the truth. Lord, we don't know the widow's name, but we can learn a lot from her example. We're grateful for all the things you taught us through her. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, I went a little overtime here, so we won't.